Good evening, everybody. We're going to get started tonight. Uh, I'm excited to get back into the mix. I feel like it's been too long. These, these Wednesdays that, that I can't teach, and then we have to bring everybody back in. Unfortunately, we're going to have another one next week. Uh, we've got a guest speaker next week, the pastor that is from Jordan. Uh, but that one, I'm looking forward to hearing that one. That'll be really, really neat. I, I was thinking about the fact that we hear so many things about what's happening in the Middle East. It's good to hear from people that live there. And we can actually hear directly from them. So that's a huge blessing. I know he's going to be on our prayer sheet for tonight. So make sure that you're praying for him, um, that all would go well, and that he and his daughter would be able to uh, fly in with no problems at all. Um, but I am definitely excited about tonight. And I'm also excited that Kids Club starts tonight. So I know that my, my kids are totally pumped about Kids Club. It's always such a great opportunity and a great outreach uh, to other folks in the community as well. So uh, be praying for that as well. So tonight we're going to be continuing our study, and we're going to be talking about the pre-Adamic world, uh, the gap, recreation. We're going to talk about the fall and the flood probably in future weeks. Uh, we'll see if we can get through the gap tonight and be able to get into the recreation. We'll see how far we get with all of that. But before we do, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into the Word. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, and we want to thank you for your goodness. Uh, we want to thank you for... Uh, your book that is an incredible wealth of information. It truly is inexhaustible. Uh, I, I love the fact that I can open up your word every single day. And it doesn't really matter how much I read or study. There's always something new. There's always something that challenges me to think differently. And I need that. This world becomes um, just a lightning rod of an, an inundation of, of so many things that are just a waste of time. And uh, your word brings great clarity uh, in a time where we need uh, clarity. We need uh, you to really help us to, to fix our, our mind and our heart upon eternal things and really uh, be profitable for you in this world. And, and so we, we I, I love how in your word you talk about that your word is like I salve, that if we're willing to apply it, that it can really help us to see things the way that you do. So help us with that tonight. Uh, enlarge our heart. Help us to gain understanding that we may fear you better, that we may follow you better, that we may obey you more diligently, that you may receive more glory out of our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in the weeks past, we spent some time talking about the pre-Adamic world and the fall of Lucifer in Genesis 1.1. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And I tell you, it took everything in my power not to go to verse 2, because I really, really wanted to. But we talked about verse 1, and then we took a hard left into Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, because those are the two chapters in your Bible that give you the greatest detail about Lucifer and his fall and what was going on, not only in his heart and mind when he chose to sin against God, but it also talks about his kingdom that God gave him the responsibility over. And so in Genesis 1.1... It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then verse 2, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And so we started talking about, when you read Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, there's a very different picture of the heaven and the earth at that point in time. And in Isaiah 14 says very clearly that Lucifer had a throne and he was given dominion. And then also in Ezekiel 20, it talks about the, the traffic that he had and the merchandise that he had and all these things that he had 
and he was lifted up with pride because of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. And we talked about how there is these group of angelic creatures called the sons of God and how they fell along with him. And so we spent plenty of time last time we were talking all about that. And that took place at that point in time. And so when you think about the heavens and the earth at that point in time, the heaven and the earth more specifically, uh, there's a phrase in the scripture that talks about heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. In fact, I have that in Isaiah 66, 1. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And so when God says that, he meant it. And so when it talks about in Ezekiel 28 that Lucifer was the anointed cherub that went up and down in the midst of the stones of fire, that he was that anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. And we used the illustration of the pulpit last time we talked about that, that you had his throne that was upon the earth, Isaiah 14, he wanted to exalt his throne above the stars of God. And so Lucifer, three times a year, that the males would appear before God, that's God's pattern that he tells uh, Moses, and all the males of Israel were supposed to appear before God, and they line up with three of the feasts in particular. Lucifer, as the anointed cherub that covered the throne of God, would go up those stones of fire, and he would stand in front of God's throne. And anywhere else you see God's throne in Scripture, you see it in Ezekiel chapter 1, you see it in Revelation as well, that you have God's throne and you have these cherubim that are at the four corners. And they would stand at the four corners, and they each had four faces. And they would be here day and night. Wherever the throne of God would go, that's where they would be. And Lucifer was that fifth cherub, the anointed cherub that would cover the throne. And Ezekiel 28 talks about how his body was made up of all these precious stones. And that there were musical instruments that were actually in his body. And so he led the worship of Almighty God. And so as he would do this, he would magnify and glorify God. And I'm telling you, what a great picture of what our lives are supposed to be. Because anything that God creates is supposed to magnify and glorify God. And so now you have this beautiful creature full of wisdom. And he is made up of all these things. And 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 talks about that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so as God's light would shine out and it would hit those precious stones. And he would play those musical instruments. And all these things would occur. I mean, what an incredible what an incredible magnification of the Almighty God in the midst of the world at that point in time. And that was his responsibility. And he was lifted up with pride because of his beauty, because of his wisdom, because of his materialism. And all these things corrupted him from the inside out. And Isaiah 14 talks about the five I wills that he wanted as he wanted to exalt his throne above the stars of God. That he wanted to be like the Most High. And we spent some time talking about what that Most High actually meant. He wanted to be in that position of authority. He wanted to be the one that dictates all the things that are happening out of all creation. And so he was lifted up with pride and he fell. And that is the same tactic that he has towards us today. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. You see it in the garden in chapter 3, which we're going to see as in the future weeks with Adam and Eve. You see it with Jesus Christ. When you see in Matthew chapter 4, what he tempted him with when he was out in the wilderness. And you see it with us as well in our own lives. And so he fell. And when he fell, God cast judgment upon his kingdom. And our cross-reference for that was found in Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 through 29. And if you were to read that, which you can look that up later. Jeremiah 4, 23 through 29. 
you have in that passage that it is almost worded exactly as we have it here in Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And the context of Jeremiah chapter 4 is that Israel is being disobedient to God. They are being rebellious. They do not want to repent. And so then God casts judgment upon them. And he opens up a little window into what happened in the past with Lucifer in his kingdom. It's the same sort of structure. And so that leads us into now verse 2, and we want to spend time talking about this as far as the consequence of Lucifer's sin, the judgment of his kingdom, and now we have here verse 2, and that is what is known as the gap. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now with this verse, and I want to say a couple things about the gap, people that that are adamantly against the gap, generally there's two reasons for it. Number one is because they're ignorant. They've never taken the time to actually explore the idea. And that happens. I was ignorant about the gap. I remember the first time I heard it, I'm like, what? That's nuts. But then I started to study the Bible, and I'm like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and it started to open up all sorts of things. There are other people that say, well, if you believe in the gap, then you must believe in theistic evolution. That God has somehow set in motion all these things and, and that you must believe in evolution because you must believe, you, you just want to believe that the earth is millions and millions and millions of years old. No, not at all. Just because we believe there's a gap does not mean that we believe in theistic evolution. That's ridiculous. And you hear a lot of those excuses come out of like the Creation Museum, Ken, Ken Ham, and some other guys like that. They... They ardently just completely bash us for believing in a gap. But I think there are some basic things that once we take a look at it, that you will start to understand that this is not something that's crazy. This is actually something that makes a whole lot of sense. And there's a lot of things I could talk about with the gap, but I wanted to try to keep it to the most simple things that are, I feel, are just overwhelmingly evident that the gap is very, very biblical. So first of all, when I say gap, what do I mean? So the gap is something that's very simple. It is an undisclosed period of time between the judgment of Lucifer's fallen kingdom and the six-day creation account. Now, it's undisclosed. We have no idea how long it actually took between verse 1 and verse 2. We don't. We can speculate. We can have our opinions. Scott and I were even talking about that this past week. We have no idea. It could have been five years, ten years. A thousand years? A million years? We have no idea because God did not say. He did not say. So when it comes to the gap, we just know that it's undisclosed. And this is not the first time that God does this in the Bible. Because that leads us to our next point. There are gaps of time that commonly exist in the Bible. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. These are probably some of the most prominent ones that we know of the best. Daniel chapter 9. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. So this is dealing with the 70 weeks prophecy, which is key to a lot of the second coming, first coming and second coming prophecies that you find in the Old Testament. And it really begins in verse 24. So I'm going to start off there, but we're going to focus on 26 and 27. So Daniel is wanting to understand what's going on, and he's been praying unto God, and you have Gabriel that's coming, and he ends up giving him clarification into what is going to happen 
in the latter days. And so in verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore in two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. After threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So as you spend some time working through this, you find out that he says very particularly that there are 70 weeks. 70 weeks. And when you study this out, one week equals seven years. And as you look at the 70 weeks, that puts it at 490 years. And if you calculate that out according to the Jewish calendar, you find out that from the declaration of when Jerusalem was to be built unto the moment that Jesus Christ stepped in and they were saying, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This lines up perfectly, perfectly with 69 weeks. 69 weeks. And that's what it says in verse 25. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score, a score is twenty, and two weeks. And so once you add all these things up, you find out that that's the first week up into the 69th week, which works out to be 483 years, and it works out to the day. Now there is a gap that occurs between verse 26 and 27 because it says... After the three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off. We know it's talking about the crucifixion, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood unto the end of the war. Desolations are determined. And now you have verse 27, and, she, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That is the final week, the 70th week. And this he is not Jesus Christ. This is talking about the Antichrist having a false peace covenant with the nation of Israel. Because we know after that colon, after many for one week, it says, and in the midst of the week, halfway through that last seven-year period, he, which is who it's talking about, the Antichrist, shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. This is the abomination of desolation that Jesus Christ talks about in Matthew chapter 24. And so what's interesting is right there between verse 26 and 27, you have the church age. You have roughly 2,000 years between verse 26 and 27. But when you read it, you would think that it's all happening all at the same time. And this is what, what the, the prophets, when they were diligently looking into these prophecies, these are the things that they didn't quite understand. And if you, any of you have studied Clarence Larkin and his Mountain Peaks of Prophecy, this is what he talks about. Because it's all a matter of perspective. Because if you're looking this direction, and you're looking at a mountain range, and you have a mountain that's here, and then there's a valley, and then you have a mountain that's here, and another valley, and a mountain that's here, and another valley, you can't see the three mountains if you're looking at it from this angle, because that first mountain is covering everything else. 
But if you were to take a look on the side and look at it from this angle, you'll be able to see everything perfectly. And isn't this how God works in your life as well? Because we see things from this perspective. We see things horizontally. But God sees things from his perspective. And he sees everything all at the same time. There's so many things in my life that I could look back on. I'm like, why is this happening? I don't understand. I thought it was going to be this way, and it turned out to be this way instead. And God's like, just hang on a minute. I know what I'm doing. And I just needed to trust him and to follow his plan. And it's the same thing with a lot of these passages of prophecy in the Old Testament. They saw things from a certain angle, but as they start to unfold, you see that it was fulfilled up to a certain point, but now there's this entire gap of time, and then it's going to pick up and continue. And there's nothing wrong with that, because God is faithful, and he will fulfill every single word. Let me give you another example. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. Go back to your left a little bit to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. So these are common verses when it comes around the time of Christmas. We quote these all the time, even though it's not Jesus' birthday. If you've got questions about that, we covered that last year, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. We ruined Christmas for everybody. And so here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 we'll see a very similar pattern. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So there's a gap, and you can see it as soon as you read it. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. 2,000 years later, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, when Jesus came and he offered the kingdom of heaven, that physical, literal kingdom where he rules and reigns from his throne in Jerusalem, that was a legitimate offer. And if the nation of Israel would have accepted him, leadership and all, as the Messiah, this would have been fulfilled. But they didn't. They rejected him, and as a result, there is a gap between given and and, or more particularly, the colon and the space. There is 2,000 years right there in between those two words, because there is coming a day where he will come back and he will take the entire world and all the nations by force, and then the government shall be upon his shoulder. And the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. When does that occur? Technically, that occurs after the millennial reign, if you think about it from that perspective, because you have a thousand-year reign, and then you have another rebellion that rises up again headed up by the devil after he's loosed out of the bottomless pit, and he goes to the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, and he brings everyone together as a final rebellion. And after that final rebellion, you've got the final judgment, and after the final judgment, then he recreates the heaven and the earth, which we're going to get to hopefully in a little bit. If not, we'll do that in two weeks. And when that happens, then the increase of his government, there shall be no end. 
There's going to be no challenger. It's going to keep increasing and increasing and increasing and increasing, and there shall be no end. And so really between verse 6 and verse 7, you've got a couple gaps that could occur here, but most assuredly in verse 6 between given and and is roughly 2,000 years of human history. And so that's another example. Now go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And I'm going to put up on the screen Isaiah 61, and we're going to compare what Luke chapter 4 says with Isaiah 61. So Luke chapter 4, verse 17 through 19. And we'll start off in 16. So Luke 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and, as his custom was... He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Just as a side note, this is amazing to me because this was his custom. So Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Word of God, as his custom, would walk into the synagogue on the days that they would read. And he would grab his Word. And he would read it. I mean, technically, everything that God said is God's word, which is just fascinating to me. But he exalted the authority of the written word of God. That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing to me. So here you have the word of God reading the word of God. And he found a particular place where it was written. He was looking for a particular passage. And look where he found. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. To the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and to recover the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Wow, can you imagine? What a, what a sight to behold and what, what words to hear with their ears. But he says very particularly that this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. This day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Now let's take a look at Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. I've got it up on the screen. And as we look at this, I want you to maybe take a look back and forth between verse 18 and verse 19. All right? So it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach the good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. So far, so good. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Where did he stop? To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's where he stopped. And then he closed the book. Because what was yet to unfold was completely dependent upon them. And so what happened was, is because they chose to reject Jesus as the Messiah, 
that day of vengeance has been postponed. It's coming. It's coming, and it's going to cause many people to mourn. And he will be able to comfort those that mourn in the process. But 2,000 years, a gap right there between Lord and and. So there's a lot of people say, ah, a gap couldn't exist. No, 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 no. Okay, well, I mean, come on. That's like saying you don't believe in giants, but you believe in Goliath. I mean, okay, you can't have one without the other. You can't say, well, this can't be, but yet it also is in other places of the Scripture. Let's be consistent with the Bible. If we're going to be Bible believers, let's be Bible believers. So, is it a possibility that there is a gap? Yes, it is absolutely a possibility. Now let's build on that. This, to me, letter C, is probably the greatest reason why I believe there is a gap. After going through this, in my mind, it was like, okay, the, it's settled. It's over. Like, I, I have no debate about this whatsoever. Letter C. It is contrary to God's nature and character to establish his creation without form and void and full of darkness. It is completely contrary to his nature and his character. Because you start to see this throughout Scripture, and there's so many verses, but these are a couple that are just very, very important, I think, that are very, very, very clear. So let's take a look at this first verse. I got it up on the screen. I got all these ones up on the screen for you so we can keep this moving. Psalm 145 and verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. There is nothing that God does that is not perfect. Whenever you come across Genesis 1-2 and it says, And the earth was without form and void and full of darkness. How is that perfect? It makes no sense whatsoever. Because if it was perfect, it would not be any of those things. The earth is far from perfect in this particular state. It doesn't make any sense. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and now the earth was without form and void and full of darkness. It makes no sense whatsoever. So that's just one little thing. Let's keep tacking on to this one. Job uh, 38, I've already told you this one, and we read it last week. I'll just read it to you really quick. He says this, Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? When God is describing the creation of the earth, we talked about how Job 38 is actually talking about what happened in Genesis 1.1. When he created the earth, it had foundations. It had measures. It had a line. It was structured and ordered. It was fastened. It had a cornerstone. It was not a mess. And what we see here in Genesis 1-2 is that the earth is a mess without form and void and full of darkness. It's inconsistent with how he originally created it as reflected in Job 38. Isaiah 45 and verse 18. Thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. The purpose of the earth was to be inhabited. It had a plan, it had a purpose, there was order behind it. It was not without form and void. It is, it is completely against God's nature to create something and to leave it without form and just void of anything. It has purpose, so something must have happened. And this one, to me, is one of the greatest ones. In 1 John, I mentioned it already, chapter 1 and verse 5, 
It says, This then is the message we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, not darkness. So why would he create something that is unperfect, without form, without purpose, and full of darkness? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and full of darkness. But God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What? It doesn't make sense. Unless something happened. Because where did the darkness come from? Because if Genesis 1-1 is as it is, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, then you would fully expect, fully expect, that all of God's creation is full of light. Because what is darkness? It is the absence of light. Well, when did that happen? And why did it happen? Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Jeremiah chapter 4. That's when it happened. Because what takes light out of the picture? I mean, technically, holiness of God, what's the antithesis? Sin. That's what happens. And so God would not do that. And it actually, when you think about it from this perspective, one day when God rectifies and he judges sin once and for all, the entire universe will return to the way it was before, and that is full of light. Take a look at this verse. Revelation 21, 23. And the city, talking about New Jerusalem, talking about the new heaven and new earth, had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. There's three other verses in Revelation 21 and 22 that talk about this very thing. That in the future, the entire universe is going to be full of light. There's not going to be a sun. There's not going to be a moon. There's not going to be any of that. Because God is going to be back to where he was at the very beginning. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool in close proximity with the earth once again to the point now where all sin is rectified. There's no darkness in the entire earth or in the entire universe or nothing. The entire universe is full of light, full of light. And then Revelation 22.5 is another one that shows you the exact same thing. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light and they shall reign forever and ever. So, just that fact alone. I could give you so many different things, but this one is the kicker. I can't get over this one. I can't get over it. Because it is completely contrary to God's nature and His character to establish His creation without form, void, and full of darkness. And when He deals with sin once and for all, with a new heaven and new earth, you see there is no darkness. And you don't see this same pattern happening again. So that is big. Here's another one. This one's a neat one. I had to show you this one. I had to throw it in. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The screen says first, but it's actually second. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter four. So Paul's speaking here, 
And he says, therefore, seeing, verse 1, we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. And then check this out. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants' sake, your servants for Jesus' sake. And here he goes. He, he brings it right back to Genesis 1-3. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you realize what Paul is doing here? Paul is using the fact that Lucifer, fallen into sin, and his kingdom being completely dismantled and judged, with the existence of a gap, and then the subsequent recreation found in Genesis 1, 2 through 5, is a picture of the spiritual redemption through Jesus Christ. And I mean, this is a beautiful picture, because think about it. In your own life, you came into this world without form, void, and full of darkness. Did you not? Because of Adam's sin, all of us came into this world in that particular state. And if we remained in that state, God can't do anything with it. And then it says, but as God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our heart. Because of Jesus Christ, the moment that you heard the gospel and the moment that you received the gospel of Jesus Christ and you were born again, it is like Genesis 1-3. Let there be light. And now all of a sudden... Everything has changed. And now, when you go back and you read Genesis 1 through 3, and we get through the recreation, now all of a sudden you start to see there's a parallel here. There's a devotional application to my own life of what God has actually done in me to the point where now I can actually bear fruit and be fruitful and multiply. Because what did he do in Genesis 1? Go back to Genesis 1. We're going to get to the recreation here in a minute. But let's take a look at this. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. This is so cool. So now that we know that in 2 Corinthians 4, let's read verse 2 again. And I'm going to continue down to verse 5. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Do you understand that when you heard the gospel... Before you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God was moving and poking and prodding you. He was. He absolutely was. And the moment that you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. According to Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about the day that you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. It says, after that you hear the, heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and after that you believe, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And when that happened, God put a division in your life. It's called spiritual circumcision. And he divided the day from the night, the light from the darkness. And now in your physical body resides the Holy Spirit of God. And what's left over, this flesh, 
It's just like, I mean, this is exactly what happens. When you think about the day, you know, we got a 12-hour day full of light, and then we got a 12-hour night full of darkness. And do you not struggle with your flesh? I do. <laughs> I hate my flesh. It gets on me all the time, and it drives me nuts. And there are certain days in my week that I feel like, ah, eh, it was mostly light. It was day to day. And then there's other days where it's like, ugh, ugh, ugh. And it was night. It's bad. It's because there's this conflict that's going on inside of us. This is, exactly what he, this is exactly what happened. Let there be light, and he divided the light from the darkness. So now you start to see this now opens up a whole new picture. And then you start to go through, and you see all the other things that God did, and he lands with Adam and Eve and telling them to be fruitful and to multiply, and he gives them a purpose. And so this is an exact replica. This is an exact picture of what's going on in your life after you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. What an amazing picture that we have. So when you start to see it from that angle, it's like, oh, that actually makes perfect sense. It does. It absolutely does. And so, as I mentioned last time we talked about this two weeks ago, other questions that must be answered if the gap is not biblical. All right, well, where did the water come from in verse 2? Because it actually says in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so you got darkness that shows up out of nowhere, and you got the face of the deep, and the Spirit got moved uh, upon the face of the waters. Where did the waters come from? No one can really explain that other than, well, it was just there before. I mean, was it though? Because it actually said he created the heaven and the earth. It says nothing about water. It says nothing about darkness. And all of a sudden it shows up in verse 2. And then lastly, if there is no gap of time, then definitively explain when Lucifer fell. You can't. You can't. I, it doesn't matter who you are, what your degrees are, what Bible translation you have, if you can read Greek and Hebrew and Latin and everything else, no one can give you an answer that's better than this. No one can. They can give conjectures. They can say, well, it must have happened between here and here. Prove it. They can't. They can't. We have an answer when you compare Scripture with Scripture and you take a look at what God has revealed in His Word. There was a kingdom before God recreated everything in six days. And in that kingdom, Lucifer ruled and reigned. And because of his sin, he fell. And the whole world that he had at that point in time was completely judged and God had to put an end to all of it. And it became without form and void and full of darkness. And the Spirit of God, who's always in the business of regeneration, moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And he started again. So in light of that, let's talk about the recreation. We're going to see how far we can get. Uh, I doubt we're going to be able to get through all of this, so we might have to pick it up in a, in a part two later. But I want to, in that, in that same thinking, I want to work through this passage from this angle, and you're going to see some amazing, amazing things. So let's talk about the recreation. Okay, so Genesis 1-1, we talked about how this is how it was. You had God's throne, close proximity with the earth, Lucifer fell into sin, and that cast judgment. Now in verse 2, this is kind of what it's like. You have God's throne, not in close proximity with the earth, far away from the earth, and because God is light and Him is no darkness at all, this makes logical, perfect sense that when you go so far down into the ocean, it gets rid of all light whatsoever. So when you have the deep and you have this water and this body of water, it is full of darkness because it's that water that's blocking the light, which again is another great correlation back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. And so now you have the entirety of God's creation that is now full of water, 
And that's what we see in verse 2. And the earth was without form and void and darkness upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So when God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. These first few days, you see God defining a lot of different things. Here he defines light, and he defines darkness. And he defines it as day and night. Now, there is no direct connection that the day is Jesus Christ and night is Satan. But if I had to take a guess, that would be my guess. But you do see that God places a difference in between light and darkness, day and night, because he divided one from the other. But you also see this pattern throughout Scripture. Let me show you a few verses. Amos 5.8. This one's a great nugget. Seek him that maketh the seven stars of Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into the morning, and maketh the day dark with night. It calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. So he turns that shadow of death into morning, and he maketh the day dark, and he uses waters in that particular process. Romans 13, 12. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. Ye, born again, are all children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So he clearly makes a difference between the two. And then Revelation 21, 25, And the gates of it, New Jerusalem, shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. So he totally places a difference between light and dark, day and night, and you see that pattern throughout Scripture. Day, talking about the day of the Lord when he makes things right. It talks about righteousness, night, evil, sin. It's all, all there within Scripture as a type and a pattern. It's very, very clear. So that's day one. Day two, here's where it gets fun. Day two, the firmament, the dividing of the waters and the naming the firmament as heaven. And this gets into the question about the three different heavens and explaining them a little bit more. Verse six, and God said... Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament of the water from the waters, which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. So, taking a look at this from another, just going back to our illustration, God placed a firmament in the midst of the waters. And he called that firmament heaven. And he divided the waters from the waters. The waters from the waters. Now, in here I put it small, but as, as we're going to see, he actually makes this uh, completely different. And then starting in verse 9, we'll keep continuing into the third day. And God said, let the waters which are, were under the heaven, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas, and God saw that it was good. Now, before we go on to verse 11, this is what it progresses into. You have the waters which were above the firmament gathered together into one place, and you have the waters which were below that were gathered into one place. And he specifically says the gathering together of the waters called he seas. 
So now you have the C, which we're going to talk about this probably not next week, but the week after. We're going to talk about the sea of glass. And that sea of glass is also called the deep. It's called the face of the deep. And it's called the crystal sea. And so you have waters that are at the very top of the universe. And then you have the gathering together of the other waters upon the earth. And there's also water found throughout the universe. There's some people that even believe there's water at the bottom of the universe. Can't really prove that. But we do know two things for sure. Up above, there is the sea of glass. There is that barrier of water between outer space, the outer part of the universe, and where God's throne is. And then we know that the earth is also full of waters, and both are called seas. And he specifically said the gathering together of these waters called he sees. And then in verse 11, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. So he ends up making the dry land appear, which doesn't show in this particular picture, but that's what ends up happening. And then we move on into the fourth day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. I love how it says that. Just, oh yeah, and by the way, I just, you know, just made the stars. <laughs> and God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good in the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So on the fourth day, you have the sun, you got the moon, and you got a bunch of stars. Now, technically, there's only supposed to be three colors of stars. Don't take me to the bank on that one. There's green in there and purple, so whatever. But here in this picture, you have this. Now, here's something to think about that uh, might blow your noggin a little bit. Wait a minute. The sun and the moon is on day four. But yet, day one, day two, day three, God said evening and the morning were the first day. Evening and the morning were the second day. Evening and the morning were the third day. But the sun didn't exist until day four. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So why, what happened? <laughs> like, what are you going to do with that? So here's an interesting one. This one's fun. So think about it from this angle. You know, Jesus is recorded, and I think it's in John chapter, I think it's nine. Uh, forget the passage. I just looked it up a couple days ago. But he says, uh, don't you know that there's 12 hours in the day? So God has this particular pattern, and he has set it to be a 24-hour period. And we know that because of what he did on day four. So the earth existed before the sun. Yes, the earth existed before the sun, which is quite fascinating. And so you have that all happening. And then you have God setting things in order in such a way where he's going to give the sun and the moon. And he says very specifically, according to these verses, where he set them to give light upon the earth to rule over the day and over the night, verse 18, and to divide the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. So this is very simple. What God did was that he already had a certain timetable in mind. He had a certain thing in his mind, and he already was operating on a 24-hour period. And so when he placed the sun and the moon and the earth, and he began rotating, and as he does, then what ends up happening? Well, it reflects his timetable that he already established. 
And if you think about it, this isn't difficult. Because how do we come up with measurements in the Bible and throughout human history? People had to measure things, and then they created instruments in order to measure that measurement. So what's an inch? Well, I don't know. Um, it's just part of my thumb. All right, perfect. Okay, so uh, how are we going to do that? Well, we need to create something that will actually be equivalent of that measurement. All right, well, then let's go ahead and do it. We've done that for thousands of years. God did the exact same thing. He wanted things to operate on a 24-hour period, 12 hours by day, 12 hours by night. And he wanted to put it in, in, in motion, and so he did, and he created the sun and the moon and the stars to measure all of it. And that's what he did. So it's very simple. Very, very simple. Now, there's some people that take this and say, well, you know, technically, if that's the case, then this is where a lot of flat earthers get some of their stuff where, you know, the earth is actually the center of everything, or you have people that believe in what's called geocentrism, which means that the earth is at the center of the entire universe, and everything rotates around the earth. You could actually make a serious case for it, biblically. You really could. Now, based upon what we know, we don't think that that's the way it is, uh, because what you end up having is that you have the sun, and everything rotates around the sun. So I have no problem with us rotating around the sun, that we are actually um, completely rotating around the sun because God made it happen. He created the earth and it was, it was set there and he had a 24-hour period and then when he placed the sun in motion, he began spinning everything around the sun. I have no problem with that. But there's people that will make a great case for that the earth is the center of everything. Here's the trick though, because if you go down this rabbit hole, you will get lost. <laughs> I am telling you, it is crazy. Here's the thing though. I think there's a lot that's going on that we don't know. Because here's the reality. No human being has been outside of lower Earth orbit. If you go back and you start to study all this stuff, lower Earth orbit means, which by the way, there's a lot of people that get this one wrong. Lower Earth orbit means past the moon. No one has been past it. Now we've got telescopes, we've got satellites, and we have all these things that are taking pictures of what's out there but we have no clue of what reality actually is beyond the moon. We don't. We absolutely do not. And you could actually make a strong case that the God of this world is doing a lot of stuff out in the universe to make people think that we are small and insignificant and that would further the theories of evolution. Now that's getting into some more of my opinion about things. I have no idea. But I do know this, that when God created it, he created it in this particular fashion. And he divided the waters from the waters, so you have the sea of glass up top, and in the firmament, he placed the sun, moon, and the stars. And from our perspective, the way that God has positioned the sun, moon, and stars, it is meant to be measurements for us to know what's going on and what the timetable is and how things are on a calendar and when it comes to our day and all those things. And so it's quite fascinating. So if you end up traveling down that path, be very, very, very careful. Be very careful. You need to stick with what the scriptures say. Because there's a lot of things that are out there, a lot of conspiracies that may not be true that's going to get you off your rocker really fast and make you unfruitful in the work of the Lord. So be very careful. So then after day four, we got day five. Day five. And that's verses 20 through 23. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales in every living creature that, that moveth which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the fowl multiply in the earth in the evening, in the morning, were the fifth day. So on day five, you have the creation of the creatures in the water. 
You have the creation of the fowls that fly in the open firmament of heaven. That's the first mention of the atmosphere as one of the uh, heavens. And then he calls out whales, and that's a fun one. Because whales, I mean, technically, he could have just said this, the creatures in the water. But for some reason, God called out whales. Why? I wonder why. <clears throat> Jonah. And so here you have him creating something very special that was going to take place later on. And who knows? Maybe God created whales just for Jonah in the future. I don't know. That's just an interesting thought. But God commissioned them to be fruitful and multiply. Then day six, 24 through 21. And God said, let the earth bring forth a living creature after his kind, the cattle and the creeping thing and the beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Yes, even though you might be afraid of spiders and other creeping things, God said that it was good. Okay. Verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein, I, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So on the sixth day is the creation of the cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth, and man as male and female. Yes, you heard it right, male and female, no matter what's going on. And God commissioned man to be fruitful and to multiply and to have dominion over God's creation. Okay, so now, this is where it gets real fun. This, and especially when you get into chapter 2. In chapter 2, God gives more details about what's happening in chapter 1. In particular, with man and the creation of, of all that and what he created as far as the help meet for him. So chapter 1 is the linear in order from day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Chapter 2 starts to give more information about some of the other details that are in it. But here on day 6, the day of man, on day 6, God creates something very unique, and he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. He creates man in his own image, and he gives him dominion. So now you start to see where the picture comes, where the devil hates, hates you and I. He despises humanity with a passion. He was given dominion. He was given a throne. He was given the creation of God to subdue it and to control it, to be a steward of that world. And he fell into sin and God judged it. And so then he recreated everything. And then he creates a very special creature, lower in strength and majesty and glory than the angels. Lower in beauty than even the cherubim. And he crowns him as King Adam. And the moment that happened and he gave him dominion, it's right in the face of the devil. And he hates it. Hates it. Take a look at chapter 2 really quick. In verse 7. 
And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Not only did he create man and give him dominion, but he created him out of the dust. I mean, the lowest of the low. And I'm willing to bet this, this one's my opinion, but I'm willing to put it out there. I, 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 almost, I, I could almost see it. The very place where Lucifer's throne sat is probably the very place where God picked up the dust from the ground and breathed into it, and it became a living soul made in the image of God. Because God's like, okay, you're not going to glorify me the way that I created you. You're not going to do what I commanded you to do and fulfill the purpose that I had for you. Fine. I'm done. I'm going to recreate everything. And from the dust where your throne stood, I am going to make a creature that's lower than you, that's not as strong as you, that's not as beautiful as you, and I will be glorified in him. And then he gives him dominion. So now this sets up chapter 3 in a very unique soap opera-like fashion. <laughs> and this is why our enemy, we can never underestimate him. We can never underestimate him. Day 7 ends with chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, where God rested on the seventh day. And that's a beautiful picture of that 7,000th year, that millennial reign where Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign. And so to end this, I'll just talk about the three heavens and then we'll be done. And then we'll save the rest for the future. We'll talk about the sea of glass in two weeks from now. So because of what God created with the firmament and he divided the waters from the waters, now there are three heavens that are created by the firmament. And so let's compare. You're already in Genesis chapter 2. Take a look at verse 1 again. In your King James Bible, it says this. And I made that the statement in particular because if you have another translation of the Bible, it's not going to say this. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Not heavens. Heaven, singular. Now, after the recreation from verses 2 through the rest of the chapter, take a look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day. So everything that took place with the firmament, it, it took it from a heaven to heavens. And now there are three heavens that exist you have the atmosphere. We already read that in verse 20. Take a look at chapter 1 and verse 20. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. So that is talking about the atmosphere. And then we have the second heaven, which is verses 14 through 18, where you have the lights in the firmament for seasons and for days and for years, the sun, moon, and the stars, which you've already read those verses. And then you also have in 1 Kings 8.39, and this will be the third heaven, the third heaven. Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, talking to God the Father, and forgive and do, and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest, for thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men. This is the same third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that Paul, when he was caught up into the third heaven, that he saw the throne of God and he heard things that it's unlawful for a man to speak. And you see the same thing take place in Revelation chapter 4. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4.
Those of you that are in church history at the moment, you know that chapter 2 and chapter 3 give an overview of church history. And at the close of chapter 3, you have the Laodicean church period. And then according to the Word of God, we have the rapture of the church that takes place thereafter. And that's what happens in verse 1 of chapter 4. And after this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. That's another one in two weeks we'll talk about. And the first voice, which I heard, was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither. That's the rapture. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. So you have this green rainbow that goes around the throne of God. So once you go past that door, and you are in the third heaven, you have the throne of God. That's the first thing that John saw when he was caught up through that door, when it said, come up hither, when Jesus said, come up hither. And you have immediately, he was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And so we're going to talk about the Sea of Glass because that's the place where the throne of God and the temple of God sit upon the surface of the Sea of Glass. And we're going to talk about that two weeks from now, about what that is. And we're going to talk about these doors and there's windows as well and where those show up in Scripture. So, what your appetite for a couple weeks. And I'm sure you might have tons of questions. If you've got some follow-up questions, we can talk about that uh, at another place in time. Uh, we don't have enough time to have any follow-up questions for tonight. So, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll move on into our prayer meeting.